I invite you now to turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. We'll take the time to read the entire chapter through. So, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab, and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed your mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and under her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also if aught but death part thee and me. 
when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In the very first verse in the book, we're given the historical setting for the story of Ruth. We read there, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Verse 1 tells us. You know your Old Testament history. You know that the book of Judges describes the constant spiritual declensions of the Israelites following the time when they conquered the promised land. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 6, we're told, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went, every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Then a little further down in verse 10, we're told, And also that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. A generation which knew not the Lord, nor his works, arose and did evil. You know, I look at a text like that, and the thought strikes me that fear should be in the heart of every parent and should drive us to our knees to pray that our children will not become a generation that knows not the Lord. The cycle thus described in the book of Judges arguably has been a recurring cycle throughout the history of redemption. A generation experiences the presence and power of the Lord. A new generation rises which goes the way of the world and falls into idolatry and immorality. The Lord moves then in chastisement, and for a time the people are restored. But eventually another generation arises that doesn't know the Lord, and so they drift again. It's important then to know a little bit about the spiritual declension and compromise and apostasy that prevailed in the time of the judges in order that you might appreciate the special place that the book of Ruth occupies in the Bible. It is in that setting. 
In contrast to the constant declensions of the book of Judges, the book of Ruth serves to teach us that even in the worst of times, there is a remnant that does know the Lord and serves and honors him. The spirituality of this story is at once sensed by the reader when you read of a wealthy landowner and farmer by the name of Boaz. In chapter 2 and verse 4 we read, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and saith unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. What a sublime picture of grace is manifested for us in that text. We see an unusual sight, a man who knows the Lord, and his laborers know the Lord, and they respect each other, and they're industrious, and they're generous, and charitable, and they're morally upright. Oh, this is a work environment that every Christian would long for. And remember that the setting for this sublime picture of grace in operation in the hearts of a landowner and his workers is the setting, generally speaking, of spiritual declension and moral degradation and idolatry. You could say that the story of Ruth is like an oasis in a vast wilderness of ungodliness. And it serves to show that God's purpose of grace was still advancing, even in the worst of times. In fact, if you turn to the last chapter of the book and look at uh, ver chapter 4 and verse 17 and then verse 22, you see that the main purpose behind this story is to show how God was preparing to advance his cause in greater strides, so we read in verse 17, in chapter 4, And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Down in verse 22, And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So we find at the very end of the book, then, this mention in this genealogy made of David. The whole story is preparing the reader for another character who would not come to the scene of time uh, yet for a couple more generations. But when he would arrive, he would advance the cause of Christ in a great way by looking then at the first verse of the book, which tells us this story took place in the time of the judges, and then looking at the last verse, which tells us Ruth's son would be the grandfather of a very godly man who would contribute much to the cause of Christ, then the message becomes very plain and clear that the Lord builds his church, that the Lord advances his cause even in the times of the judges. The advancement of that cause may be undetectable at times. It may not characterize the entire nation. Indeed, you might have to search far and wide to find a farmer and his employees who live in the fear of the Lord. But he does nevertheless advance the cause of the gospel of grace. Now, what is true in a broad sense is also true on a personal level. 
The Lord advances the work of grace in the hearts of every single person who has gained a saving interest in him. I love the verse in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that tells us, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what we see demonstrated in a broad sense in the story of Ruth is also demonstrated on a personal level by the characters of Ruth and Naomi. In other words, they show us the truth that every true child of God will persevere in the faith. He will persevere in the faith. He will go on with the Lord, even though the circumstances around him uh, are abominable and abysmal. Yet, those that know the Lord will continue with the Lord. And this is the truth I want to draw your attention to this afternoon, just for a few moments. Let's look then at a couple of the marks of those who persevere in the faith. The first thing we can say of them is that, one, they are subjected to trials. The Lord's people, the true seed, they are subjected to trials. We at once perceive in this first chapter of Ruth that we're dealing with the story of a family in which things go from bad to worse. The story begins with them leaving their home, leaving the promised land, leaving uh, the city of Bethlehem, Judah. That's a subject, I suppose, all in itself. Famine in the promised land. This is one of the chastisements the Lord brought upon a people who had forsaken him. In sojourning in the country of Moab, this family probably had high expectations that they would find relief. Things were supposed to get better. But as the narrative indicates, things only got worse. I don't doubt that they found some relief from the physical famine. After all, the text indicates to us that they spent 10 years in Moab. They must have been able to find bread there then. But when Naomi's husband dies, things went from bad to worse. And when her two sons died, perhaps at the same time, maybe one after the other, things became worse still. A woman bereft of her husband and sons was in about as desperate a situation as a person possibly could be. Oh, Naomi, I'm sure, could not see six months ahead, maybe not even a week ahead. All she could see was that her future looked bleak because there was no one left to provide for her. And to make matters worse, following these awful tragedies, as if to add uh, insult to injury, there comes then the news that the Lord had provided relief back home. Oh, don't you know the thoughts that must have plagued Naomi when she heard that? Why did we leave? Times were tough, but if only we had stuck it out a little longer. Maybe we could have made do with less. Others did. 
and then maybe these awful calamities would not have come upon me. Maybe I wouldn't have lost my husband and my sons. The full impact and extent of Naomi's calamity is revealed when upon her arrival back in Bethlehem, she requests from those who know her that they no longer call her Naomi, which means my delight, but rather call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And in close connection to this designation, Naomi requests for herself is the statement in verse 13, For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. That phrase, it grieveth me much, may be translated, I have much bitterness. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that in the brief 22 verses that make up this first chapter of Ruth, we have in miniature the same kind of thing that we have spread over 42 chapters that make up the book of Job. The parallels are striking. Job didn't go sojourning to another land, but he did lose all his possessions. He lost his children and his crops and his livestock. And in a sense, at least spiritually speaking, for a time, and perhaps even literally, he lost his wife. The whole point being, then, that the Lord subjects his people to trials. He subjects them at times to severe trials. It is possible for the Lord's people to become so sorely distressed that they become bitter. I don't think there's a worse condition to be in than to be engulfed with bitterness. Bitterness can become a powerful force that can dominate a person's life. It becomes a filter through which everything passes. Everything you hear goes through that filter of bitterness. You read the worst into everything. And everything you think and say come from the same perspective. Just thinking the worst, being about as pessimistic, as chronically pessimistic uh, as you can be. It's no wonder Paul would write to the Hebrews and say to them, and we looked at this verse this morning, though I didn't uh, park on it. But in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, we are told to look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. That word troubled is a word that in other places is translated by the word vex, often found in a setting of demonic possession, being vexed by a demon, in this case being vexed by bitterness. I think a person becomes vulnerable to bitterness when his sense of purpose has left him and when nothing seems to make sense. There's nothing so hopeless or helpless as that kind of feeling. And it may very well be that this is the way Naomi was thinking when she said to her neighbors, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me.
The thing I want you to see from this progression of circumstances from bad to worse is that in spite of it, Naomi's faith in her God nevertheless persevered. She never lost sight of the truth that her circumstances had been ordered by the Lord. The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me, verse 20. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty, verse 21. When her mind is made up to return home, she blesses her daughters-in-law by saying, The Lord deal kindly with you, in verse 8. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband, verse 9. It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She sees the hand of God in all of this, nevertheless. She still affirms the hand of God then in her life. And though his blessings, his dealings in providence had not been pleasant, she still affirms that this is the Lord. You find the same thing in the book of Job by Job's example. Job chapter 12 and verse 9, he replies to his antagonistic friends, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Naomi then would not let go of her Savior. Her trials would not turn her into an atheist or an agnostic. She would not disown her Savior She would not reason the way some are prone to reason that God would never treat her this way if he truly loved her and was concerned for her. Now the seed planted in her by God's grace was an indestructible seed. And this is why the saints persevere in the faith. Their salvation is of God. He's the one that gives a new heart. He's the one that opens blind eyes and softens hard hearts. Oh, it's very popular today to believe that the Christian life should be a life of health and wealth and luxury and ease. The religious charlatans that promise these things can draw large crowds. This kind of religion has great appeal to the world, but a religion of sanctified hardship is far less appealing. I can still picture the scene from Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Pliable are headed toward the wicked gate. Christian has explained to Pliable that the place to which he was headed was a pleasant place. There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments shining like the sun, Christian says to Pliable. But before they reached the wicked gate, they both fall into a quagmire that is called the slough of despond. Christian couldn't explain the quagmire, and Pliable became offended by it, and after struggling to pull himself out of it, he turned back to the city of destruction. There are those who seem for a time, you know, to be attracted to Christ, The prospects of eternal life and a home in heaven have great appeal. And for a time, such people may identify with Christ and with Christ's people. We have an example of it in our narrative this afternoon. At first, Orpah seems uh, as resolved as Ruth to return to Bethlehem, Judah. She weeps at the thought of her mother-in-law leaving. 
She, along with Ruth, lifts up her voice and weeps and kisses her mother-in-law, but eventually she does return, as we read in verse 15. But Ruth evidently had seen something different in Naomi. Ruth could evidently detect, even in the difficulties of her mother-in-law's trials, that she knew and served the true and living God. So neither Ruth nor Naomi would be among those who draw back to perdition. They must go on with God. We can draw from this passage, therefore, the truth that persevering faith presupposes trials and afflictions. How else can faith be proven to be enduring? The words of Christ in John 16 and verse 33 in the world ye shall have tribulation. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, Peter writes. And when you think of what Christ himself endured and dwell upon his sufferings for your sins and then consider that God's purpose is to conform you into the image of his Son, including being made conformable unto his death, then these fiery trials don't seem so strange. They divide what's true from what's pretended. And they serve the purpose of making us lean harder and cleave the more tightly to our Savior. Well, all this leads to our next consideration then. We've seen that the mark of a Christian who exercises persevering faith is that he is subject to trials. In close connection to this point, let's consider finally that those who possess true faith are resolved to cleave to Christ. The resolution is strong. Look with me in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These are tremendous words, well known in the book of Ruth. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord, and you'll notice the Lord, all capital letters there, Jehovah God, and the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. The resolve on this part by Ruth bears strong testimony to the work of Christ in her heart. Naomi had presented very convincing arguments against her daughters-in-law returning to Bethlehem Judah with her. She had nothing to offer them. She was poverty-stricken herself. She couldn't tell what awaited her. She could make no promises to either of them. What reason could there possibly be for going on with an elderly lady who had nothing and could give them nothing? Well, I think the reason for Ruth's return with Naomi is provided for us in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You would look with me at those verses. We jump down now into the character of Boaz. 
And we read, And Boaz answered and said unto her, that is Ruth, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. She had come to trust in the Lord. Ruth had come to trust in Christ. Ruth must have learned something of God's gracious purpose and redemption during those ten years in which Naomi lived in Moab. I think it would be correct to say that Ruth had learned to look beyond the temporal things of this world. This always has been an important aspect, you know, of saving faith in Christ, even in Old Testament times. So we read of Abraham in Hebrews 11 and verse 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Oh, Abraham could see ahead, and Abraham could see beyond the veil of this sin-cursed passing world. There's a text, I often refer to it as a text that gives us a very clear, I think, and concise, somewhat comprehensive definition of what true saving faith really is. In Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 15, we read these words, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Do you see from that passage that true saving faith sees the promises, is persuaded of the promises, embraces the promises, and then lets go of the things of this world. It is only by being mindful of the country from which we departed that a believer may be lured back to that country. But he cannot long be contented in that country once he's seen better things. His faith endures because Christ is the object of his faith. He is the surety for our blessings. He is our assurance that no matter what happens in this world, he is with us, he is for us, and he will be with us to the end. I can remember many years ago listening to a message in which the preacher's opening prayer uh, said words to this effect. Lord, we thank thee that however bad things seem to be for us in this world, this is as bad as we'll ever see these things. We'll never see things worse from an eternal point of view. We'll only see them better. Heaven will be better. Eternal life with Christ will be better. Being openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment will be better. 
entering into the joy of the Lord, being perfectly blessed and the full enjoying of God will be much better. So I wonder today, are you persuaded of these glorious truths? If you are, you'll cling to Christ. You'll be resolved to cling to him because you'll be convinced that he will never let you go. He may subject you to trials and afflictions out of love and in chastisement. Indeed, if we're not partakers of chastisement, we have cause to wonder whether or not we're true children of God. But if you can, with the eye of faith, stay focused on the things that are invisible, then your resolve will be as Ruth, and you will say to Christ what Ruth said to Naomi, Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. If God has planted the seed of a new nature, then your faith will endure. This is not to say that you'll be exempt from sin. It's not to say that your faith may grow so weak as to become barely detectable. It is to say that you'll return. If you drift into Moab, you'll return eventually. If you, through restlessness and spiritual famine, go searching for things to satisfy, you'll return to the only one who can satisfy your soul eventually. You will return to Christ. And so I trust this day that if you've drifted from him, that you will return and if you're enjoying his presence in your walk, then resolve that you will cleave to him. I love the exhortation that Barnabas gives to the church at Antioch. With this I close as we read in Acts 11 and verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. Oh, may the Lord grant to us all that same purpose of heart. Let's close then in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the lessons of thy word. We thank thee, O oh Lord, that thou dost teach us to expect trials and afflictions. Help us, O Lord, not to count it strange when we are subjected to fiery trials, knowing that in thine eyes the trial of our faith is exceedingly precious, more precious even than gold that comes through the fire. And, O Lord, if there be those here this afternoon who have not seen the promises, believed them, and embraced them, and confessed that he's a pilgrim in this earth. O oh Lord, grant saving faith to any and all that may yet be without it. So hear our prayers and take our thanks now. In Jesus' name, amen.